Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 139. Today is September 17th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, in today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the markets, uh, some of the reaction and the things that have happened uh, now that the Federal Reserve has postponed a rate increase. And despite the fact that almost everybody thought at some point during 2015, we would see a rate increase, they only have one more opportunity to raise interest rates, which would be when they come back for their next FOMC meeting, which is in December. So we're going to talk about that today. And then the main emphasis of the podcast is to talk about procrastination and how it can be your worst enemy. So let's first talk about the markets. There was a lot going on today, obviously because of the long-awaited announcement of the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee meeting as to whether or not they would adjust interest rates. And basically we were talking about uh, a move in in the Fed rate of less than 0.0025. So that's less than 25 basis points. You've heard me beat this dead horse that it is totally insignificant, but the market was totally focused on it, and the media has hyped this event up like almost no other all year. I mean, it's really verged on the coverage that we saw from whether Greece would default or you know stay in or out of the euro. Real briefly here, I want to draw your attention to one other thing that I think is getting uh, no coverage in the media, and that's the refugee problem that we're seeing going on in Europe. I've mentioned this before, uh, and let me, let me, I guess, say this with a caveat. The refugee situation is getting coverage in the press, but, but what I don't think is getting covered on, which is the real impact of it, and that is how is that going to affect Europe's economy? That's what I'm not hearing talked about. There are a lot of problems in Europe. There continue to be a lot of problems in Europe. The biggest saving grace for Europe, and really the biggest saving grace for Germany, which is the powerhouse of Europe, has been the strong dollar, which has promoted exports, the strong U.S. economy, which has absorbed those German exports, and then finally, the lower oil prices. This has been extremely uh, beneficial to Germany, to Europe overall, particularly to Germany, um, the countries in Northern Europe. They are oil exporters. So from that as- aspect, the lower energy prices haven't helped them. Southern Europe is so inefficient and, and doesn't export very much. So they haven't been helped as much by the strong dollar as Germany, but it still has helped them in any case. Despite all that, the European economy is still very fragile. As a continent, they're barely working their way out of the slowdown that they've been in for a couple years. They're really teetering on deflation and recession. Um, some of the northern and southern countries are, are maybe potentially still in recession. But bottom line here is that all these refugees pouring in primarily from Syria, but other parts of northern Africa and the Middle East, they are going to be a drain to the overall nearly worn out, overstressed, overstrained European welfare state. I think this is going to be a problem not only short-term, but also long-term. Of course, we're swing traders. We try and time the market. We're worrying about investing here, so we're more concerned about the short-term effects. But I think it will have an effect on Germany in particular, on all of Western Europe. This could drag them into recession. You see that the European Union economy isn't as resilient and robust as the American economy. And that's not meant to be stated as anything uh, bad against the Europeans. I love Europe. My ancestors come from Europe. I'm just stating a fact here. 
the U.S. market is more resilient. Not necessarily that it's better, it's just more resilient. So the problem with Europe absorbing all these immigrants is, is one thing is they don't absorb immigrants very well. They have a very hard time assimilating immigrants into their, into their uh, general population and into their economy. That's number one. Number two, they have a lot of structural problems with their economy, uh, particularly when it, when it comes to, to uh, unemployment and generating new jobs. That's why the American economy is more resilient because we do have that economic engine that allows us to create more jobs and, and that can get absorbed not only by American-born employees, but also immigrants that come in. We, we have, in America, we have a resilient enough economy where a lot of jobs are created. That's not the case in Europe. I think the Italian unemployment rate is something still over 12%. In Spain, um, very high, something like 20%, maybe more unemployment. And then even up north where things are much better off, again, you know, Sweden, probably 6 7% unemployment rate, still significantly higher than the United States. And when you combine the problems of, of bringing in people that have been uh, dislocated from their home countries, they don't have the same European culture, they don't speak the language, they potentially don't have the job skills needed. Um, you know, we're talking about refugees being flooded into Europe. The unemployment rate among these refugees is going to be significantly higher than native-born Europeans. So this is a problem. It's going to drag their economy. I'm not hearing that talked about. You want to keep an eye on that. When you combine those problems in Europe with the slowdown in Asia, and then, of course, all the trouble in that Middle East area that's causing these immigrants to leave, we do see potential storm clouds gathering and forming on the global economic landscape. So that's something you want to keep your eye on. In any case, let me try and get back on topic. Uh, so let's just jump right back into talking about the markets. The Federal Reserve didn't raise interest rates. There was very slim chance that they were, although it would have been kind of interesting and uh, surprising and actually quite refreshing had they come out and done it. Because as I've said, it makes no difference at all. It would have been a bold move that would have had very little consequence. And in fact, any short-term, I think, pullback that it would have caused in the market would have probably actually been better for the market uh, long-term or even short-term than them postponing this again. And let me kind of try and explain this. As I've said many, many times, the 25 basis point increase is very insignificant. But it would have just made a stand to say that, hey, we, we, you know, we finally think that the economy is strong enough. We have not raised interest rates since 2006. This is now 2015. We think it's time to start raising interest rates and we will gradually start doing that. But they didn't do that. They failed at the opportunity. And, you know, they continue to say really ridiculous things. And this just goes to show you one more example of how the media and the press, they just really think you're stupid. And they repeat things and take things out of context and they make a big deal out of things that are unimportant. And for example, they always focus on Janet Yellen and the Federal Reserve statements where the Fed says that they will be data dependent as they make their decision to raise interest rates. Okay, so data dependent. Go ahead and Google that phrase or think back in your memory. Think how many times you've heard the financial press talk about the Federal Reserve being data dependent. Was that like an oxymoron or just totally ridiculous? What do we expect the Fed to be dependent on? Do we expect them not to look at data? 
Do we expect them not to look at market conditions and general economic conditions, not only in the U.S., but around the world, since we are the number one world economy, since our economy is so influenced by global trade and global interactions? I mean, what do we expect them to be making their decision on, if nothing other than data? Do we think they're using a Ouija board? I mean, it's just ridiculous and it frustrates me to no end. In any case, here's the point that's relevant to us. And that's that we saw some really strange things happening today, and particularly on the S&P 500, where we saw a negative reversal. Right at 2 o'clock Eastern Time, when the Federal Reserve announcement came out, the S&P quickly jumped up. It went up to something like uh, 2006, 2007, something like that. And then it abruptly fell apart and I think dropped down maybe as low as uh, 1885, 1886, something like that. That's a pretty significant drop on a day when everybody was supposed to be excited about the Federal Reserve not raising interest rates because what that means is there's still a loose money policy and, you know, the, the punch bowl is still at the party on Wall Street. And yet we had a negative reverse, so it went pretty steep. The market ended up closing down only slightly, maybe I think 25 basis points or something from yesterday, but it closed below the critical psychological barrier of 2000. Remember, I've been telling you, watch anything above like 1993, 1995, up to 2000 on the S&P 500. Well, so it did. It rocketed up to that level just above 2000, 2006, 2008, whatever. I think it topped out at 2008 today, earlier today. But it has fallen back down in a negative reversal, and that's in above average volume. This is the first time in probably like two weeks that we've seen above average volume on the S&P 500. And both of those times in the last two weeks have occurred on negative reversal days. So that is telling. I think this relief rally could turn out being a sucker's rally like I talked about before. There is a great deal of resistance at 2000. It did break above that today, but it's fallen down below it now. So we want to watch that. Of course, it's only slightly below 2000. It's still, it's still at a fairly strong level. 1990-ish is still a pretty good number compared to where we were at two weeks ago. Breaking above that high that was reached after the flash crash on, I believe it was August 28th was when um, the last time we had had a high. That's how I had calculated where resistance would be and why this 1990-ish number is so important. The fact that we came back to that level shows support, but it also shows resistance because the market couldn't break above 2000. Now, the interesting thing will be on Friday when the market's open. Don't forget, this is an options expiration. I believe it's triple witching day. You're going to see a lot of volume. It'll be interesting to see on Friday at the end of the day if markets can close up and how close they can be to that 2000 mark. Otherwise, if they do fall apart, the question will be how low do they go? Most likely, they'll get support right around uh, 1978 if they break below that 1978, 1975 level, then that will obviously be a bad sign and this short little rally we had here will be over. The other thing that troubles me in this market is the performance of the U.S. dollar. Now, you know I've been a, a long-term fan of the, of the dollar. One of the main ETFs that I use to track that and to invest in, and full disclosure here, I, I do have an overweighted position in the U.S. dollar. I've, I've been in this position for quite a while now. I do it through several exchange-traded funds, but the primary one I use is UUP. It's very liquid. It's highly traded, and it tends to be less volatile than the other funds. 
Again, I'm not offering you any type of recommendation or giving you advice here. I'm simply telling you what I'm invested in. You need to make your own decisions. But here's here's the problem that I've been concerned with for the last five trading sessions or so. We saw the dollar recover after the flash crash. It, it obviously went down because all asset classes go down when things get bad. Interest rates came down because of a safe haven status of the U.S. dollar. When interest rates come down, that brings down the value of the U.S. dollar. But it quickly recovered from that. U.S. dollar was showing some very good relative strength when compared to the S&P 500. Coming out of the flash crash, it got above its 200-day moving average, which is very key for a currency. That all started to fall apart, though, on um, one day last week. I don't remember if it was Thursday, Friday of last week. It broke down below the 200-day moving average. That, to me, was, though, expected as we were coming into this week where people were anticipating the Federal Reserve announcement. We pretty much all knew that they weren't going to raise interest rates. But it dropped sharply today, down 1%. That's concerning to me. It hasn't broken long-term resistance yet. But that was a pretty steep drop, so I am watching that. The other thing that's concerning to me is is that the dollar is moving the other direction from where it should be with interest rates. Remember, as interest rates go up, the value of the U.S. dollar should go up. So back a couple weeks ago when we had the flash crash on August 24th, 25th, interest rates came down because people sell their stock positions, they buy U.S. Treasury bills and Treasury notes and Treasury bonds because they're safe. That raises the price of the bonds because you have a lot of demand for them. Consequently, because bond yields and bond prices move in different directions, it brings down the yield or brings down the interest rate on the bonds, which brings down the value of the U.S. dollar. So that all made sense. But since then, since the flash crash, interest rates have come up quite a bit. Ten-year treasury yields right now are right around 222 During the flash crash, they got down in that 1.9 range, uh, maybe even lower, maybe in the 1.8 range. And so they've come up significantly over the last couple weeks, while at the same time, the dollar had been flat to down. So that's concerning. I mean, even just the other day, uh, maybe it was Tuesday or Wednesday, the 10-year Treasury rate got up to 2.3%. And again, this is at the same time when the dollar's coming down in value. That doesn't make sense. And so even today when the interest rates are at 2.22, they're really not that far off of kind of the benchmark area we're looking for, which is two and a quarter. As long as they can stay at or above two and a quarter, that means that things are moving along fairly well in this stagnant, no growth economy that we're in. The closer they can get up to around 2.5%, the better, because ultimately, the 10-year Treasury yield or the 10-year Treasury interest rate, that's just a reflection of the economy. The 10-year generally exactly tracks the nominal growth of GDP. And so when you have low interest rates, that just means you have low growth. So in any case, you know, with with the 10-year yield being around 2.2 something, that's not a bad number. The dollar should be performing better than it is. I'm concerned about that. I'm watching that. I'm not liquidating my position yet. I think I'm down maybe 0.6, something like that overall in my dollar position right now. I do expect the dollar here, you know, near to long term to still be improving against all the emerging markets and against the established markets like Japan and Europe because they are continuing to print money while at the same time we're showing a little bit of self-restraint. So I'm concerned about the dollar, but I'm still I'm still running with it for now. 
Other key point about this negative reversal today, and I guess this is where I was going back here a few minutes ago when I was talking about the Federal Reserve and the fact that they uh, continue to not raise interest rates even when it's a measly, you know, 25 basis points or less. Here's the problem. Here's the message that it's saying to the market. What they're saying is, is that since 2006, the U.S. economy has not been strong enough to have a raise in interest rates. That's after we've had a major stimulus program before George Bush left office. And then since President Obama's been in office, we've had all the quantitative easing programs, one, two, and three. We've had huge deficit spending. And, you know, every now and then you'll, you'll hear the press come out and, and tote the party line and say things about, well, the deficit is decreased by, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, we're still spending something like $400 billion too much. We're spending $400 billion or more than we take in. So yes, that is better than spending $1 trillion that you don't have, which is what we were doing uh, in the depths of the recession. You know, But to say, oh, well, we've cut the deficit by 50%, well, you know, big deal. You're still spending $400, 500000000000 dollars that you don't have. That's a problem. And the bigger problem is the diminishing returns we get from this. All the deficit spending with the poor fiscal policy from uh, the administration, the, the Congress, and then all the Federal Reserve easy money, none of that is producing any growth. It's not producing any growth in our country. It's not producing growth in overseas markets. That's why commodity prices are so low. That's why emerging markets are falling apart. Remember, the concern here is liquidity crisis, commodity debt defaults, that could throw the global economy into recession, if not into depression. Now, we're not chicken little here. We're not going to put on our tinfoil hats and worry about an economic collapse. But it could be a major problem. That's why I still remain with a, a very um, large cash position. I see more downside to this market than I see upside. That won't last forever. At some point, there will be some great buying opportunities. A few days ago, I had a post over at investablewealth.com and I talked about one-armed economists, which is something that Harry Truman had said uh, after World War II about wanting a one-armed economist. I'm not going to go into details on that now. It's a very short blog post. You can go over to investablewealth.com and, and read that if you're interested. What I do want to point out here, though, and this relates back to many questions that I've received uh, from you in the listening audience about, you know, could I record a session, uh, kind of a, like a live session when I'm doing trading so that you could hear exactly what's going on in my mind? Well, that blog post was kind of to give you uh, some insight into that. And so what I talked about was, I believe it was Monday, you know, mid-morning, I was all set up and ready to just jump into the S&P 500. I was going to take an overweighted position in it because I could see the momentum building. I could see the price going up. And then all day long, as I uh, had restrained myself from, from placing those orders, I saw the market going up and going up and going up more. My concern was is that we were going to see a sucker's rally, and so that's you know why I didn't invest. And so I made a comment about, you know, was that wisdom or was that cowardice? And that's what you're constantly struggling with in investing. Because remember, it's not a science. There is not one algorithm that works. You're taking calculated risks, but they are definitely risks. There is nothing but uncertainty into the stock market. No one can know what's going to happen. No one can be 100% sure what the Federal Reserve is going to do. And then even if you were, you cannot be 100% sure what the market reaction to that will be. 
Case in point, all week long, the market's been going up. After we get the announcement, the market does a negative reversal. The important thing to remember is that the stock market is not based solely on economic principles or balance sheets or profitability. All those things play into it. Ultimately, long term, the price of a stock always comes back to its future earning estimates. I mean, that's what it always comes back to. But the pendulum swings. Things get overpriced. They get underpriced. It's because human nature, fear and greed. As an investor, particularly as a small individual investor, you can take advantage of that. But what you have to be able to do is control your own fear, control your own greed, and get a handle on your emotions. I had a really hard struggle earlier in the week watching this, watching what I thought was a sucker's rally, but at the same time, knowing that it could be a, a full-fledged relief rally and we could see the market, you know, on the S&P 500 go on to you know, 2050 to hit to hit 2050 on the S&P 500. Well, that would be a very nice run-up. That would be something that I would obviously want to participate in. But at the same time, I had to discipline myself and say, there is much greater risk here than there is reward. And so I restrained myself from making those trades. Now, if things work out, if this turns out to be a sucker's rally, if the market goes on to make new lows or to test the lows that we saw back on August 24th and 25th, then I'll be a hero. I'll be able to brag about how smart I am. It'll be great wisdom on my part, right? Wisdom and maturity as an investor. On the other hand, if we go into a rally and the market goes up to 2130 or 2150, I look like a loser. So, right, those are the things you struggle with. And for me, it's not the perception of it because I really don't care about that. What I care about is the, is the money. I don't want to jump into a market too quickly and lose my money, nor do I want to sit out of a market and be stubborn and argue with the market and lose the opportunity cost. So I just bring all that up so that you know that, you know, even after I've been doing this for 30 years, I keep reminding you, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. No one can predict the future. But what we can do as investors is we can assess risk and we can have risk management strategies where we're not sacrificing all of our portfolio should something go wrong. It's better to have a bird in the hand than two in the bush. And so that's what you want to keep in mind as you try and navigate through these very volatile markets. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. And so that takes me on to the main topic that I wanted to be the theme of today's episode, and that is about procrastination. You often hear me preaching about being patient. I tell you to be patient. I tell you to not be afraid of taking a cash position, not being afraid to get out of the market a little too early. Patience is a virtue. It's something that's very much lacking in retail investors, particularly new retail investors. People like many of you in the audience that are very new or are just, you know, unfamiliar to investing, you think you have to go in and buy, buy, buy. And that's obviously because that's what the financial industry wants you to do. They can't make money if you're not losing it. They can't make money if you're not in there trading, trying to make money so that you pay them fees. So the better part of valor in you know, being a small individual investor is to not be afraid to move into a cash position and to be patient and wait for the right opportunity. I preach that constantly because most people don't get it. But today I want to talk about the other side of the coin, which is equally as dangerous as not being patient, and that's procrastination. You see, there's a definite difference between someone that's wisely patient and someone that's 
fearfully procrastinating or procrastinating because they're indecisive. And again, that gets back to the struggle I had earlier in the week and where I, and I blogged about that being a, a one-armed trader, which again refers back to Harry Truman's wanting a one-armed economist. Being able to make a decisive decision, not saying on the other hand this or but that or it depends. Now, of course, we always have to hedge our bets. We have to think of all aspects of the trade and all the outcomes. But at the end of the day, you have to make a decision. And as new data comes along, as you gather new information, as the market conditions change, you have to be prepared to act further, you know, to maybe change your position. You don't get dogmatically attached to one position. I'll give you, you know, the example with the U.S. dollar. I've been a very big proponent of the U.S. dollar for, I don't know, more, much more than a year. But at the same time, you heard me say just a little bit ago that I'm worried with the performance of the U.S. dollar. If I have to sell it and take a 1% loss or a 1.5% or a 2% loss, I will do that if I think it's going to save me money in the long run. I'm not going to argue with the market and say, you know, just shout at my computer screen at the quotes and say, the dollar's supposed to be going up. Why are you going down? Don't you know that Japan is easing? Don't you know that Europe is uh, ramping up their quantitative easing? You know, the dollar should go up. The dollar should go up. You see, the market doesn't care what I think. It doesn't do any good to argue with the market, right? That's why you have a wife. Argue with your wife. Don't argue with the stock market. It doesn't do any good. Incidentally, arguing with your spouse doesn't do any good either. Just thought I'd throw that in. But in any case, you get the point. But you have to make a decision. You can't just vacillate. You just can't waffle. You have to be proactive. The decision to stay in cash is a very wise decision, but staying in cash because you're just procrastinating is a bad decision. Now, as far as procrastination, you know, there's basically two types of people in the world. There's people that will procrastinate and stay in cash because they're afraid to buy into the market. And then there's the inverse of those people, and that's the people that buy into a position and they're afraid to ever sell it, particularly when it's going down. They say, oh, it can't go any lower. Oh, it'll turn around. Oh, it'll get better. They hide behind the strategy of buy and hold because they're afraid to make a decision because they're procrastinators. I've been hearing lately from a lot of people that have procrastinated making decisions. I talked to a guy today and he said it was okay that I could use this as an example. I'm not picking on him, but he'd been procrastinating. Him and I first talked, I don't know, a year ago, eight months ago, something like that. He's a regular listener of the podcast. He reads my blog. And despite all that, he's been buying and holding through this market downturn. And then when I talked to him today, he said that he's been afraid to talk to me about it because he thought I was going to yell at him. I don't think I'm that mean of a guy. I don't think I yell at you listeners of the audience that take positions different to what I'm taking. I mean, I'm always telling you, I'm not out here giving you advice. I'm just talking out loud. So I'm not going to yell at you or belittle you if you didn't do something I did. And you have to remember, just as many times as I do something right, I do something wrong. That's why I have a risk management strategy in place. That's why I don't put all my eggs in one basket, because sometimes I drop that basket. But this individual, he said, you know, hey, I was afraid to talk to you because I you know, thought you were going to yell at me. The other thing he said, and this is really, I think, telling about the procrastination side of things, he'd said that one of the reasons that he hadn't taken action on some of the things that him and I had talked about was because that he didn't hear back from me. Now this, let me categorize this, this is not a client, okay? This is not someone that I have a fiduciary responsibility for. This is not someone that I'm actively trading their account. 
he always initiates the conversation. And he does that because he's not a client of mine. Okay, now obviously, I have a fiduciary responsibility to actively communicate with my clients and to trade for them and, and to do the things that um, that I agree to do for them. But I obviously don't have that kind of responsibility to just general listeners of the podcast or people that follow my blog. So just because people contact me and we may talk, that doesn't mean that I'm going to email them or call them up or if they're local that I'm going to, you know, run over to their house and tell them, hey, you're not taking my advice. Why aren't you doing this? And, you know, grab them by their collar and shake them. That's not my responsibility for one thing. For another thing, it's not my style. When people contact me, regardless if, if they're contacting me because they're a client referral or if they're contacting me just because they, you know, they found the podcast and they want to get more information about what I do. I am always willing to talk to people, particularly people that fit in the category of potential clients, right? I would be stupid not to do that. But I almost never follow up with people that would be categorized as as prospects. Now, I'm not saying that I never have. I'm not saying that I never would. And obviously, if you tell me to, you know, call you in two weeks, I'm not going to be rude. I would call, you know, call someone back if I told them I would. But when I have a general conversation, just for example, Let's say that I'm talking to one of you in the audience, you contact me, you say, you know, John, I have $500,000 in my IRA. I'm concerned about the market. Right now, I have it all in index funds, and I'd like to know what you can do for me. Well, I would obviously talk to that person. I would see if they fit with my style of investing. I would see if, uh, based on their goals and objectives for their retirement or whatever they're going to do with their money, if it's something that I could help them with. So the point I'm trying to make, though, is, is that when I'm talking to someone that would be a prospective client, Unless I've told them I'm going to specifically follow up with them for a particular reason or to answer a question that they may have, I don't call them back. I don't send them emails. I don't market to them. But when it's all said and done, if I think that they would be a good client for me and if I think that I could be a good fiduciary for them, then I tell them that and I tell them to go think about it, you know, to do whatever they need to do, take their time and get back with me. And I tell them, you're not going to hear from me again. And then nobody really believes me. Everybody thinks that they're going to get email reminders or that I'm going to keep calling them back. And generally, I don't do that. Now, that strategy has worked out very well for me in building my business and, and getting uh, building a clientele of people that are just great to work with. So the point I'm trying to make in this whole thing is, is that this gentleman tells me that one of the reasons he's been procrastinating is that I didn't, you know, get in contact with him and persuade him and maybe twist his arm a little bit into, you know, thinking more along the lines of my investment strategy. He thought that I would do that. And since I didn't do it, that either meant that I didn't want him as a client or, you know, that meant that I was somehow unsure about what I was doing. And so to some degree, he was blaming his procrastination on the fact that I wasn't proactive in trying to get him in as a client, even though I told him that I wouldn't try and actively pursue him as a client, that I was here if he wanted me, but I wasn't going to bother him. He's a big boy. He can make his own decisions. The reason so many of you get ripped off, the reason so many people buy annuities that they're later sorry that they invested in, or the reason that people get scammed so easily is because they let other people persuade them. They're involved in, you know, active procrastination to not make a decision. And they're waiting for somebody else to come in and sway their opinion one way or the other. What I want to highlight here is, is that is one of the most crucial mistakes you can make. That's, I think, probably the biggest reason why procrastinators eventually fail is because they procrastinate and they wait so long that they make themselves vulnerable and they, they're just sitting ducks and they're waiting for a con man or a salesman to come along and tell them what they want to hear to alleviate their fears to make everything all better. 
And what they end up doing is making a bad investment decision. They get involved in a Ponzi scheme or they take a hot tip or they get in, involved in an investment that, you know, it's a sure thing. It's insider information. It can't go wrong. People that procrastinate, eventually when they make a decision, they generally make very poor decisions. And it's because they end up making the decision because someone sold it to them. Someone twisted their arms. Someone used strong arm tactics. People that procrastinate are vulnerable to judo-like techniques. The salesman or the con man or the promoter that comes in and is able to manipulate you is taking your own weakness. They're taking your own biggest and greatest fears. And like a judo move, they're using that to throw you down on the mat. So be aware of what con men are going to do to you or what salesmen are going to do to you when you're fearful and when you're procrastinating. You are your own worst enemy. The stock market is not based all on economics and spreadsheets. It's based on human nature. The biggest thing that you can control as an individual investor is your own emotions. You can have the wisdom and the discipline and the maturity to be patient. And on the other hand, you can have the discipline and the fortitude and the strength to make a decision when it's appropriate. Lack of patience and procrastinating are just two different sides of the same coin. But you can learn to control them. And in fact, if you want to be a successful investor, if you want to make money in the stock market, you have to control them. Because if you don't, sooner or later, your luck is going to run out and you're going to have a major loss which will wipe you out. So think about that. Are you being patient enough on one hand? And on the other hand, are you not a procrastinator? Are you taking the appropriate action when it's called for? Don't blame your troubles on someone else. It's not the Federal Reserve. It's not the big greedy banks. It's not the crony capitalists. It's not the immigrants on welfare. If you're not as successful as you want to be, either as an investor or as an income earner or as an entrepreneur or whatever it is, it's no one else's fault. You have to look in the mirror and take responsibility for your own actions. Even if you get ripped off by a con man, you have to consider that you had some culpability in that because you were vulnerable and you let yourself be taken advantage of. Okay, well, there you have it. There's a little bit of tough love for you, but that's part of being a wealth setter. That's part of the wealth building principles that we talk about on every episode of this wealth setting podcast. So stick around. I'll be back probably tomorrow or at least by the weekend. We're going to see how things wrap up at the end of the week. We're going to see what the triple witching expirations, what impact they may have had on the stock market. Keep your eye on that level on the S&P 500 to see if things can break out above that 2000 mark or whether they recede and things drop back down below, you know, 1975 or somewhere around there. Okay, be cautious. This is a very volatile market. I promise I'll be back with more insight and market commentary. So until our next episode, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.